Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Nice. You guys doing well? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you. You know, um, I'll, I'll say this. Last week, my family and I were in Boise, which is like a totally different state, isn't it? It's like so different down there. And um, like we weren't with you guys last Sunday, obviously, and we really missed you guys. And so I think it's kind of cool as a pastor when you're away for a week and you actually miss the people that you get to pastor. It's kind of cool. So anyway, um, glad to be back. We're glad you guys are with us this morning. Um, if you've been with us for the last two years, you guys know that we've been in this book of Matthew, going verse by verse through it for, uh, I think, maybe a little over two years. And this morning, we're wrapping up chapter 25. And uh, in the next few weeks, we'll wrap up the whole book of Matthew. Um, and so it's kind of a monumental thing for us to end this chapter in our church's history. But this morning, um, today, we're actually going to be looking at Jesus's last public sermon that he gives in, in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. So everything after this passage that we're talking about this morning happens in private, basically, between Jesus and his disciples. And so what he's teaching here is, this morning is sort of the, it's like the culmination of, or like the summation of everything that he's taught to these crowds, to those that are seeking him out to his disciples and even to his enemies he's been teaching these people publicly and so this is the last and final word that he gives before Jesus goes to the cross in a very public way um, Matthew includes this here because Matthew like Jesus actually wants this sermon to be imprinted upon our hearts and our, upon our minds upon our conscience um, he wants everybody who reads this to, to get something out of this for it to be lodged in their heart and this isn't just one of the teachings in, in Matthew's gospel. I want to kind of guard us against that this morning because this section here in many ways is like the summation of so much of what Jesus has been teaching his disciples over the course of this three years that he had in leading his disciples. It sort of comes to this culmination right here. And it's this sermon about the end of the world, like as we've been in Matthew 25. And it's a really intense sermon that Jesus is giving, right? It's this sermon today, he'll talk about the, the day of judgment. And really, all of Matthew 24, chapter 24 and 25, is Jesus teaching about this, this day of judgment to come. He knows that three days after he's giving the sermon, Jesus is actually going to be hung on a cross. And he's going to go to this Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to go there. He's going to pray. He's going to be betrayed by his friends. He's going to be arrested. He's, he's going to die alone on this cross, abandoned even by his followers. And so this is his final word to them before all of this takes place. And, and so Jesus is sort of saying like, hey, you know, I, I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to fall. I know you're going to stumble. But, but I really pray that after that, you will rise again and you will walk in obedience to your king. And so all that to say, this is a really important passage that we get to camp out in this morning. It's an infamous passage. It's a challenging passage. Like, it's something that should pierce our hearts this morning as we just even read this text. And so I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me one more time. We're only going to do this 20 times today. Stand, sit, stand, sit. Um, every time I mention a, a, a passage of scripture, you're going to stand this morning. <laughs> And so I'll just be like, and in the book of John, <laughs> sit down, and in the book of Acts. Um, 
So it says this, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Take this in this morning. Let this sink in as you, as you hear these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see, a, see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was, ang oh, I was angry, I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. And God, even as I was studying this morning, and rereading and rereading this passage, God, I just realized, one, that it's just a blessing to be here with your church. But two, God, that there's a weight to this text. And I pray that this morning, God, that your spirit would be moving in our midst this morning. God, that all the distractions of this past week, the month, the year, um, Lord, that you drowned those out. But this morning, it really is us just tuning into you and asking you, Jesus, what is it that you want to speak to me, God? So we allow your spirit to do your work the way that you want to this morning. And Jesus, we surrender this time, Lord. We surrender our lives to you, and we ask ask God that you be honored in this time and that your name be glorified, Jesus. We love you in your name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus, the, this humble carpenter who spent three years hanging out with blue-collar fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, all the people who are on the margins and the fringes of society, the lowly, he's been serving them, right? He's been healing the sick. He's been washing feet. He's been multiplying loaves of bread. I mean, there, there's a, the center of power is in the city of Jerusalem. And think about this for a second. Jesus has spent no time near that. He spent his three years, the majority of it, in the margins, in the fringes, with the people that nobody else would spend time with or give time to. Jesus has been living in the margins among people that the world would forget. And then he gets to this last sermon and he says, but I want you to know on the last day, I'm gonna return. And I'm gonna return, he says, with all of my angels. 
Now, I don't know how many that is, it doesn't give us a number, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, who knows, all, he's going to return with all of his angels. I mean, imagine being one, one of Jesus' disciples at this point. You know, at times they question him, like, does he, does he really know what he's doing? Like, kind of a strange dude that does some strange things. They've seen the miracles, and so they know that there's something to Jesus. Like, there's something of weight and substance. And then he says, on the last day, I'm coming, and all of my angels are coming with me. And so we have to realize that in the Bible, right, when we talk about angels, they're actually fairly terrifying creatures. Like, for us, angels are usually viewed as babies with wings, right? We see them as these, these cherubim. But in the Bible, they're, they're, they're terrifying. Like, the first thing they always say when, when people, uh, when angels appear to people in the Bible is what? Don't be afraid. Like, there's something in them that's like, it's, they're fearful because of what they're seeing. Because when they show up, what happened? Like, people freak out. And it says, on the last day, Jesus is coming with all of his angels, and he's going to sit on his glorious throne. And that on that throne, while he's sitting on that throne, we're told that all of the nations, will be gathered before him, that all people from every corner of the globe, across all periods of time in history, all people will literally be gathered there before Jesus, and that he's going to separate all people into two groups, is what he says. That he's going to put some people on his right, the sheep, those that he calls righteous. And then he tells them that those on his right are going to enter into the kingdom that's been prepared uh, prepared before the foundation of the world for them. And so this is the promise of this new heaven and this new earth. This is the place and the reality that every single one of us has longed for in our lives, this place that we would eventually get to, a place where there's no sickness, a place where there's no disease, where there's no depression, no anxiety, where there's no death, no violence, no hatred. It's this place where all is well and all will be well, a place where peace actually does rule. Does that not sound amazing to you guys? And it's this place that every time we look and we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is the place that's promised to those who sit on his right. A place where it's the way it's actually supposed to be as God intended for it to be, that that's what this longing in us is for. A a place where all is made right, where, where peace, again, does rule. And Jesus says that, And on that day, those on his right, the sheep, will inherit the kingdom, is what he says. But but there are those who will be on his left who who will enter into the fire of destruction, is what Jesus says. And you know, presenting this passage on a Sunday morning to somebody who's maybe new with us this morning really sucks, right? Like, sorry you're here. Um, Challenging. It's challenging. It's a hard passage. There's going to be this separation, some to eternal life, some to judgment in the fires of destruction. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what actually causes that separation? What instigates that that separation? How do you end up on the right or the left? How will Jesus judge all the nations? And what's really surprising, I think, is that the answer that's given is not that those who prayed to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior get into the kingdom. Or the answer that he gives isn't like those who confess their sins and turn to Jesus and trusted him. But just if you read this text, just like plain text, read this passage, 
The, the basis of separation, as Jesus states it here, will be how we can be considerate of others, how we fill the needs of those around us. I mean, consider the people that are mentioned here. Well, let's think about who Jesus is actually talking about. He talks about the hungry. Jesus talks about the, the thirsty. He talks about people who are in an emergency situation. And, and then the righteous are those who actually provide care, those who actually provide assistance to someone that they see in dire need. And, and they get to, they get to, they are people who actually are moved to action to help provide for those that cannot provide for themselves. They, they give them food or water or the things that are actually essential in life. And when Jesus talks about the stranger, a stranger in that day actually meant something totally different than it does to us today. A stranger to them usually was a way of referring to immigrants. It was a way of referring to refugees, people who are fleeing their home country or their homeland, and they're trying to save and, and preserve their lives. And Jesus says the righteous will be those who invited them in, who cared for them, who advocated for them, who offered them friendship, who offered them help. And then next, Jesus talks about the naked. And the naked are like the poorest of the poor, right? They're the people who don't even have bootstraps to pull themselves up by. And the righteous are those who see those people and they don't say, well, you know, you got yourself into that mess, get yourself out of it. But instead, they show up and they give them clothing. Instead, they show up and they meet their real physical needs. And then he talks about the sick. The sick are simply the sick, right? Doesn't take a lot of definition. But these are the people who can't contribute to society, like they can't contribute to their families. And in all actuality, in a really real way, they become the people that take more than they can give. And Jesus says the righteous are actually the ones that go to the sick. The righteous are actually the ones that go visit them. And then it's the same thing with those that are imprisoned, that they provide emotional support, that they provide encouragement and comfort to those that are in need. And when you think about all the emotional and the physical realities that are presented in this passage, it's pretty comprehensive, right? And Jesus is saying that the righteous are those who move towards the hurting and the vulnerable and the needy. So think about this. The, the righteous are those who intentionally move towards those that are lacking care. And, and nobody else is concerned with them, right? But the righteous are. Nobody else cares, but the righteous care. The, the righteous have this desire within them to help. And I'll be honest with you, I, I've wrestled with this passage at times over the years because I have my theology, right? <laughs> we have our theology. My theology says, like, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? And I always hate it when the Bible sort of gets in the way of my theology, don't you? Like, what a hard thing. Like, wait, Jesus kind of makes everything more confusing than it needs to be, it seems like. And I think that's why a lot of Christians would rather just stick with the teachings of Paul at times, right? Because when you get to Jesus, he says some stuff that's actually really hard, that actually carries some weight, and it kind of bites. Paul sort of gives you some easier formulas to digest, and I love, like, all of God's word, but on some things, Paul seems to be a little bit more clear on the basics. Like, he just lays it out a little bit easier for us to digest. And then you come to the words of Jesus, and Jesus is like, oh, yeah, like, judgment day is coming, 
I'm coming with all of my angels. It's going to be this day of glory and dread. It's going to be terrifying. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to judge based upon how you cared for the lowest of the low, how you cared for those in need. And then this ends up, this tends to make us feel really uneasy as Christians. Like, what is Jesus actually saying? Man, at the heart of the Christian faith is the belief that we're justified by our faith, not by our works, right? So what is Jesus saying? Jesus says, but you'll be judged according to your works, it seems like, in this passage. And I think that trying to find a nice and easy solution to this doesn't actually honor the text before us this morning. I think trying to find some kind of workaround doesn't honor the tension that we've talked about so often that I think sometimes Jesus just wants us to sit in, to feel the tension of this, to let it sink in deep and to challenge us to the core. And I think that when we let ourselves sit in this tension for a little bit, that's when God does some of the most amazing work on our hearts. On the opposite, when, when we instead, instead of looking, like we, we go looking for this easy way out, it's better sometimes when we actually sit in it. Like, what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that works matter? Is, is he saying that our salvation is based on works? Like, what is it that Jesus is teaching here? And that's when God, as Joey Swope always says, right, does, like, the big things. In the midst of that tension is when God has done the best work in my heart. I don't know about yours. I want to look at Ephesians 2 really quick um, because I do think that Paul's pretty helpful in understanding this. But in Ephesians 2, a passage most of you probably know, verses 8 and 9, Paul talks about salvation, and Paul says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so Paul seems to be pretty clear here, right? It's by grace that you're saved. It comes through faith in Jesus. It's not anything of your own doing. It's a gift that God's actually given you. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our salvation is a gift that God gives us by faith. But then the very next verse attached to this thought, it's not like Paul says, all right, let me change the subject for a second. It's just right into this passage after that. He continues in verse 10. And I think way too many Christians stop at verse 9. He goes on to say, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not a result of work so that no one could boast. And then verse 10, he says, for we are his, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, or you could say like, that we're recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, is what Paul says. And so this image that Paul gives us is him saying that God is sort of like this sculptor, right? And that we're all these rough blocks of marble of sorts, and then he saves us, and God goes to work in our lives with this hammer and with this chisel, and he's got his son, and then he's got each of us, and he's committed to sort of chiseling and forming us into the very image of his son, that he continues to do that work in us throughout the course of our lives. And then Romans 8 is this really famous verse as well, right, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And, and then the very next verse, we're told what that purpose is, that, that, that we be conformed to the image of God's son, right? Like this is how we can hold together the fact that we're saved by faith, but we're also judged 
by our works because God is absolutely committed to forming us, to, to shaping us into the image of his son, that we become more like him. And this isn't just in what you do. Listen, it's also in what you love. It's also in what you desire and what you long for. It's also in how you care for people and particularly how you care for the hurting and the marginalized like Jesus mentions in this passage. I was talking to somebody not too long ago and they were asking if, if I had really spent two years teaching through the book of Matthew. And I said, yeah, we have. And they were like, you know, uh, and, or I said, yeah, but we're almost done. You know, we'll finish it in the next few months or whatever. And, um, and when people ask that question, they normally follow it up with this. Like, does it get repetitive? Is it boring? Do you wish you could just like move on to the next book or series? And honestly, like for my personality, as much as I like change, working our way, working my way through a book like this has been so good for my soul. Because every week that I'm immersed in God's word and I'm trying to sift this out, he's chiseling away at my heart. Like every time I open up his word and I spend time with him, he's literally making me into the image of his son. Why would I ever want to skirt that and move on to the next thing? But that's what this culture tells us, right? Hurry on, get on to the next thing. You need something else. You need to change in your life. Do this, do that. Instead of sit in the tension, let God do the work that he wants to do because the you that's at the end of that is way better than the you that was at the beginning because he continues to chisel away. And when you sit in a book this long, like you, you, two and a half years or whatever, there's themes that begin to sort of emerge as we've worked our way through Matthew. And one of those themes that emerges in Matthew's gospel is this whole idea of mercy, right? Which appears again and again and again. This idea that right at the center of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus is that you are actually a merciful person. That that's at the center of it, the core of it. And that a merciful person is a person who isn't looking to be paid back or to pay back. It's not a person who's looking for revenge in their life. And, and it's not somebody who's even like fighting for all that they deserve and all that's owed to them. But merciful people, think about this, are people who are quick to forgive, people that are quick to listen, quick to give the benefit of the doubt. Merciful people don't entertain revenge fantasies, right? Am I the only one that has like those kind of revenge fantasies every now and then? Where you're like, oh, you know, like scheming how you're going to get somebody back for what they did, right? It's like a Seinfeld episode. And you're like trying to wrap your brain around how you're going to get them back eventually and how it's going to pan out and then what your steps are. Like a merciful person doesn't live their life like that. A, merci a merciful person lives into the image of Jesus, like to become more like him. A person who was quick to forgive, who was quick to show compassion, who was quick to show mercy. And what Paul's getting at and what Jesus is getting at is that God cares not just about our actions, but God cares about your heart. It's another big theme in Matthew's gospel, right? That God cares about the center of who you are, that he deeply cares about the formation of your heart. And I know that some of you were raised in a church family or maybe in some sort of like a religious structure that told you that it was all about what you do 
and what you don't do. But it's all about your behavior. And so the life of the Christian is all about behavior modification. And I want to be clear that I believe that God deeply cares about our behavior. He wouldn't mention it if he didn't care about it. But Matthew and Jesus in Matthew's writing shows us that God cares ultimately more about our hearts, who we are, the center of who we are. And you see this in Peter, right? Like we'll get to this in in a few weeks. We get this front row seat to all of Peter's massive failings in the next few weeks. And still at the end of it, what is it that we know about Peter after all of his failings, even after Peter denies Jesus three times? What happens the next time that, Peter, that Jesus sees Peter? What's Peter doing? Anybody know? He's fishing, right? He's going back to his trade. He's fishing. And what's Jesus doing? He's cooking fish tacos on the beach, right? And then when Peter sees Jesus, there's this amazing moment. Like, what does Peter do? Peter literally jumps off the boat. He just wants to go and be with Jesus. And it's a really important scene that we'll get at in a few weeks. And it's really important to point out throughout Matthew's gospel that God cares more about our hearts than what we do. He cares more about who we are and about what we love. And so the first thing I want you to see is that this text doesn't contradict. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't contradict our understanding of justification by faith. We believe that. It doesn't contradict our understanding of the nature of God's grace. But I would say that it deepens how we understand and think about God's grace, for sure. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace is opposed to having this attitude that if I don't do enough good things, then Jesus won't love me, or I've done so many good things that Jesus now has to love me, and this just is not biblical. But effort is us saying, I want to bring the teachings of Jesus to bear in my life. I actually want to follow Jesus' example. I want to allow him to chisel me and make me more into his image. I remember the first time 13 years ago that I taught through the Sermon on the Mount. We actually went through the book of Matthew starting in 2009. It was the first book that we ever went to 13 years ago when we planted the church. And um, I was young, didn't have a lot figured out, and now I'm old and still don't have a lot figured out. But... I remember preaching through the Sermon on the Mount 13 years ago, and um, thinking to myself that each one of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, is Jesus showing us how bad of sinners we are and that we need him to save us. That, That we don't have to actually do any of the things that Jesus is talking about. It was just sort of this measuring stick so that we could see how far off we are and how much we needed him to compensate and make up for that. And I think that a part of that mindset is true. But preaching through, back through this again a year and a half ago really caused me to think that the Sermon on the Mount is way more than I actually thought. I think Jesus really wants us to be a people who actually keep our word. 
I, I think he really wants to be a, us to be a people who remain faithful to our spouses, like a people who don't spend our days worrying about money, a people who don't live anxious lives, a people who actually do forgive. I think that Jesus actually does intend for his church to live into these things. And I mean, these things are hard. They're, they're difficult for us to read, but it's not like they're impossible, right? Anybody know people that have been faithful to their spouse? That have made a decision in life to not let money be their master? Like, I know people that have done that. It's not impossible. But to get there, you sort of have to get Ephesians 2, 8 to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 before you can get to Ephesians 2, verse 10, because if you still think he loves you by what you do, man, the, the pressure to always get it right is going to be so heavy in your life, and it's going to feel overbearing, and you'll never actually be able to live into that life of love and mercy that Jesus is calling us to. And so in this passage, the, the first invitation is to live into this, this understanding of God's grace, like how amazing it is. And what I mean by that is that God's grace doesn't just save us. God's grace actually shapes us as well. And so it actually forms us into the image of his son. And now the main question that a lot of people have about this passage when they dive into this is then who are the least of these that Jesus is talking about? Who are the ones that he's asking us to go above and beyond to care for? And for the majority of church history, the least of these were actually understood to be Christians over the last centuries. And a lot of people said that the least of these was anyone in need. And, and there's been a lot of arguing back and forth about this subject over the centuries. But who exactly is Jesus talking about in this passage? Who are the least of these? Because it's important to be clear that we're not saved by our generosity. Like, you did something good, so now you get in. You're on his right, and you become one of the sheep. I mean, if that's the case, Jesus wouldn't be going to the cross right after he gives this sermon. But I think that sometimes we get in there and we wrestle with this, and I personally think he's probably talking about fellow Christians. He's probably talking about other believers because he refers to them as by brothers and sisters, which is always the way that he refers to his followers prior. But there are a lot of Christians who would say he's just talking about how we care for other Christians. And so if that means that we can somehow neglect everything else that Jesus has taught, because throughout Jesus' ministry, he constantly cared for the poor, the hungry, and the naked, constantly. And Jesus didn't withhold care or mercy from people that only converted to Christianity. Please understand that. He didn't ask them to say the prayer prior to healing them or feeding them. I mean, there are a couple times where he would challenge and try to stir up the faith, their faith in people before he would do these miracles. But it wasn't hinged upon them converting before he actually did these things for them. But when he saw crowds of hungry and hurting people, Jesus was actually moved to compassion, is what the, the scriptures say. And I think too many people approach this passage and they say, all right, so what is it that we're supposed to do? Who is it that we're supposed to show this kind of care for? And I think that the right way to read this text is to ask ourselves, who is it that we're becoming? Who is it that you're becoming? Not who should we care for or which group do we need to focus on? Not that that's like a bad question to ask, but I think the bigger question is, who are you becoming? As a follower of Jesus, 
What is he shaping and molding you? What is he chiseling away? Are you becoming like the sheep, the righteous? Or are you becoming like the goats? And that's the distinction that Jesus makes because throughout Jesus' life and his teaching, he shows that his disciples aren't those who are selective with their love, right? They're not selective with their grace. They're not selective with compassion. I mean, what's the greatest commandment? Love God. And they ask Jesus this, like, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Like, just give us one that we can master. We just want one commandment. Tell us what the greatest commandment is so that we can do that one thing. And what does Jesus say? Nope. He says, love God. And he says, love your neighbor. And then what do they do? Just like religious people do, they start to get in the weeds and ask Jesus, all right, Jesus, but who's actually our neighbor? Like, define that for us, Jesus. Who, who's actually the neighbor? Give me the formula, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Does anybody remember what Jesus says after this? He, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And Jesus says, you want to know who your neighbor is? Like, you want to know who you're obligated to love? Anyone that you cross paths with that's in need, that's your neighbor, Christian or not. So what's the big takeaway from this? Like, what, what is the application? Like, as I camp out on this, I'm like, how do we apply this to our lives? And I think there's a ton here. And, and also, I trust that, like, God's Spirit, even through just reading the passage itself, is stirring up different things in different people across this room. But I want to give you one application that God has brought to attention in my own life. One example. Because I think one of the clearest applications of this for me and maybe for some of you in this room, is this. It's that this passage calls us to ordinary faithfulness, which we don't like. I think it reminds us that life is messy, that, that relationships are often messy. And then in the midst of the mundane in our life, he calls us to these ordinary acts of faithfulness in the face of needs that are presented to us on a daily basis. Like, we must be faithful with what God has put before us. I mean, the, the last two parables Dan taught on last week were that. Like, what are you going to do with what you have? Are you prepared? Are you ready for when he returns? And it's so interesting. Like, what's the charge that Jesus gives against the unrighteous goats? It's not that they've done some great, heinous wrong, right? He doesn't put people on his left and say, you were murderers, you were adulterers, you were blasphemers. What's the greatest failing of those that Jesus calls goats in this passage, the unrighteous? That they didn't do good to those that are in need around them. That's crazy. And then on the other hand, what's, what's crazy is that the praise and the glory that Jesus gives to the righteous isn't because they live these massive lives of great sacrifice. It's instead that they fed hungry people with bread and they gave water to thirsty people, that they helped people who were sick, that they clothed people that were naked, that they went to prison to visit those that were in prison. They became friends to strangers. Like, these aren't massive, big, flashy miracles. These are ordinary acts of faith that he's asking his church to do. He doesn't say, you went to the darkest parts of the world, you proclaimed the gospel, thousands came to faith in Jesus, so you get to sit at my right. No, 
he says, you saw someone hungry, you went and got some bread and you gave it to him. They weren't big, flashy miracles. They're great acts of faith. They're small, easy to overlook acts of mercy and love that actually flow from a heart that has been changed by Jesus. And I say this because this is also kind of part of my own story. Years ago, 17 years old, I, I give my life to Jesus, sold out for Jesus. I do anything for Jesus. Jesus was all that I wanted. All that I could think about on the top of my head was, I'm literally going to take the world by storm. We're going to rush the gates of hell. Thousands are going to give their lives to Jesus. And for much of my life, like as a younger person, like that was it. And unless thousands are giving their lives to Jesus and we're storming the gates of hell, then like where's God in the midst of all of this? And somewhere along the way, it's easy to begin to believe that real faithfulness to Jesus is only doing really big, great things. <laughs> that you can't just be faithful in the small things. You can't just be faithful with what it is that Jesus put before you today. I don't know, years ago, there was a, a pastor and author named David Platt that wrote this book called Radical that many of you have probably read. It's an amazing book uh, about what it means to be a radical disciple of Jesus, but there's some really good stuff in it, but I think that the book was sort of indicative of a mindset that I think is like brewing in our culture today. Not just amongst cultures, or not just amongst Christians, but even amongst non-Christians. And, and sort of made its way into Christianity, but this mindset of like doing huge things, taking the world by storm, like making tons of money, being very successful, we're just gonna do it all, and it misses the fact that more often than not, it's your ordinary moments in life that our faithfulness is really put to the test, honestly. It's those ordinary moments. It's ordinary moments in life are how we show up to the people that are literally right before us. Like, when I was researching this passage this last week, I found this, this piece that Martin Luther wrote about this passage, and he said, every home is a little hospital where a loving parent performs all the ministries of this text with their children, spouse, and extended family. Any stay-at-home moms or dads in this room this morning? You don't have to be ashamed. Like, <laughs> come on. Don't you think Luther's onto something? That the little things in your home, the way you invest in your kids, like it actually, those little mundane details where you're faithful with something small that God's given you actually are the acts that God wants you to move on in your life. But when you were in college, like you stay-at-home moms or dads, when you're in college, your mindset was probably like, I'm going to do amazing things. I'm going to go big. I'm going to reach thousands of people for Jesus. And now I change diapers and take care of kids and feed kids and I take care of a house and it's so easy to get trapped in this idea that like I'm so trapped in the mundane but God has these big dreams for me and these big plans and I need to go accomplish all these big things. So what does this mean for me? And I think this text should actually be a massive encouragement for those, who, those the 90% of us that sort of live in the mundane and ordinary life. There's some that God will call to reach thousands for his kingdom. Amen. 90% of us will not do that. 
but it does go beyond our families, right? It goes to our neighbors. It goes to the people across the street from us, across the town from us. It extends the, these ordinary acts of mercy extend to people within our city. And I think this text tells us that before we try to live these radical lives, we actually should do our best to, man, to master the ordinary acts of service in our lives first. That we should step into the need that God puts before us. Because please don't misunderstand me. I think some Christians are called, again, to take the gospel to unreached people, um, to, to storm the gates of hell, to praise God, to do these big things. But again, most of us will not do those big things. Most of us will be mechanics and teachers and baristas and plumbers and social workers, and we'll be in the, the ordinary life. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you being faithful and showing mercy and compassion and love to those that are in your path? in your life, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your city? Are you being faithful, as Jesus is challenging us here, to show love and mercy and compassion to those people around you? Honestly, it's why we started this church 13 years ago, to see a city changed by Jesus one person at a time. Because 400 people in this room that are each carrying, carrying this, this opportunity with them, to step into the ordinary and mundane things in the life and be faithful to Jesus actually ends up impacting a whole city for Christ over time. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. I was, um, this last week when we were in Boise, I went out on a run late one night. It was like 10 o'clock at night. Didn't know the neighborhood, didn't know where I was going. I ended up like running into like a really sketchy part of town. And I'm like, I'm running and um, like I'm training right now, so I, I'm super focused, and I'm like, I gotta get out there, get my run done, get home. And, and so as I'm running, I get to the street corner, and there's a woman sitting on the street corner, and she's got this big piece of cardboard, and she's drawing a sign that says like, in need, like I just need food, something to that extent on this sign. And I'm being real, really honest with you guys. I just kept ran, running. I got ran by, like, I got to get done with my run. There's a real life ordinary need, somebody that beyond food has a heart issue that Jesus wants to step into, and I could have been the solution, and I ran by. Fast forward three days later, like, our dog gets really sick, and she's been, like, lethargic and just kind of, like, laid up on our couch for three days. We didn't know what's wrong with her. I go to the vet the other night, and... <laughs> not knowing that um, I was going to be there for three hours because the vet was so slammed, sitting there talking with a 70-year-old woman for three hours that really got into some really deep things in life. And as I'm sitting there with this woman for three hours, I realize, God, you gave me another chance. <laughs> like, I blew the first one. I'm not going to blow this one. And so I looked at the opportunity and said, like, there's a part of me that's like, I'm too big, like my dog's sick, I don't want to think about this right now, I don't have time to play pastor and to step into this role, like I just want to get this stuff done and get my dog home. It's an inconvenience, this whole thing. And yet, we so often treat our lives like that, where we're just like, people are an inconvenience for us. Why would I stop what I'm doing and, and, and sort of like, stop my life and be inconvenienced 
to do something for somebody else that actually is going to throw me off on the long end or cost me more money or cost me more time or I don't have what it takes to deal with this person or whatever it is. And I really think that in the ordinary, mundane things of life, these simple acts of faithfulness are not, you need to go start a food pantry and you need to feed hundreds of thousands of people that need you know, food right now. So when you leave here this afternoon, we're all starting these massive ministries and we're going to literally feed the whole Northwest. But I think God is saying like, are you cognizant enough of the fact that there could be one hungry person that crosses your path today? There could be one thirsty person. I got an email just a couple days ago from a woman that's in the hospital. Like, I hate going to the hospital because I have so much PTSD from when I was in the hospital as a kid. And I'm like, these, these simple things of just like, be faithful to go visit the people who need us. Be a friend to the stranger. How different would the world look if 400 of you in this room, in this next week, acted on one simple act of obedience, ordinary faithfulness in your week with one person? That's 400 other people whose lives could look drastically different come next Sunday. These are the things that Jesus is getting at. And I'll remind you this morning that like your salvation doesn't hinge. Your salvation, the root of your salvation is not the works that you do. The root of your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the fruit salvation your life better bear the fruit of Christ because if he's chiseling away and making you more into his image then that means you're more like him and that means you respond to things more like Jesus would and that means that you care for things that you once never cared for and you're willing to sacrifice things that you once were never willing to sacrifice and now you're going to step into those situations and be present and let your eyes be opened and your ears be opened to hear and to see what it is that Jesus is asking you to step into today. It's that simple. I want to pray for you. Um, And I really simply want to ask, like, let his spirit go with you. Instead of being a people that run by, we be a people that stop. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you for this challenge, God, even in my own life. And watching that pan out over the last week. And um, Lord, I thank you that um, I'm not just somebody who stands up here and opens the word and talks about it, but somebody who's being changed from it by it myself. And I just pray for us this next week, God, that as we leave here, God, there's no condemnation. But I do pray, Jesus, that we realize how great our salvation is, how great the grace is that you've bestowed upon us, God, and that the fruit of that grace and the salvation that you've given us, Lord, is that our lives actually begin to produce your fruit. And so I do pray for us as followers of you, professed disciples, followers of Jesus, that you would provide opportunities right now, Jesus, on a daily basis for the people in this room to stop and to pray for others, to stop and to extend a hand, to care more about their lives, other people's lives than they do their own people that will always put you first and always look for ways to honor you in the ordinary acts of faithfulness that we get the privilege.
privilege to step into on a regular basis. And I pray, Jesus, that our city would look different as a result of every person in this room taking one, one act, doing one thing. Jesus, I pray your blessing upon your church. I pray that you'd ignite a fire in us, God, as we talk about the fact that you are returning. And there's a separation that will come. And that those will, that will be on your right, Lord, will be those who have professed you as Lord and Savior of their life. They will be those that actually don't just profess you as Lord and Savior, but actually choose to live their life in service to you. And yet, Jesus, we're also reminded of the harsh reality in this passage that there's another group of people, those who will not call you king. Pray, Jesus, for those in this room that have never taken that step this morning to acknowledge you, to place their faith in you, to receive your grace and your salvation and your forgiveness this morning, God. And I ask that even as we pray right now, Lord, if you're stirring it up in their hearts to take that, that, that step in their lives, Lord, your word says that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you died and that you rose again, that we will be saved. And so I pray this morning that you save your people, that you set our hearts ablaze for you, Jesus, that we take this seriously and we don't look at this as a game we play or something we go to to attend, to be spectators of, but it's something that we're fully immersed in, something that you shed your blood and your body was broken for in order to grant us the honor and the privilege of serving you, living our lives for you, Jesus, and being saved by you. And so, Jesus, this morning, may we bask in the reality of that and be grateful for the work that only you could have done for us, Jesus. I thank you for each person in this room. I do pray your blessings upon them. I pray, uh, God, they would understand your great love for them, God, your kindness towards them. I pray, Jesus, that even there would be others in their lives that would step in and be the hands and feet of Jesus to them, those in this room that can't speak up for themselves, that feel like they need the cup of water, or they need the food, or they need the friend. And I pray, Jesus, that your church would be the church and step in and actually provide that care for others, even within our bodies, Lord. And so we give this to you. We thank you, Jesus, for this time. In your name we